quiet quitting isn't for us. You know, and coming from a low-income background, having um, tons of loans on my back, you know, you want to walk that straight line because you do want to have that pathway to promotion. But there's this dynamic of the racial, cultural aspects, especially racial, ethnic aspects that <clears throat> as much as hard as I've been playing and as much as I've been going above and beyond, it's not seen in the same way as my white counterparts. BEI expert and our girl, Maritza Barros, has a couple of things to say because knowledge is power and power is change. This is Common Narrative. Quiet quitting. Unless you have been living under a rock, you know what it is. And if you're on social media, it won't surprise you that the term has garnered more than 35 million views on TikTok. That looks like the work of two people, right? Right? And I'm one. I'm just one person, right? And it's time to go home. Five o'clock. Hey, thank you. Bye. That's from TikToker Sarai Marie, one of my favorites on there. For those unfamiliar, quiet quitting is an application of work to rule in which employees work within defined work hours and engage in work-related activities solely within those hours. So it's about work-life balance, some say. It's about pushing back against a corporate structure that takes more than it gives, others say. But, but the common narrative is that it's doing the minimum at work. Recently, I came across a piece by Sean Harper for Forbes entitled, Quiet Quitting Isn't Really a Thing Among Black Workers, and I was absolutely intrigued. Dr. Maritza Barros is a tough university lecturer and former chief officer of talent and culture at the city of Revere. Thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. I'm going to call you Maritza if that's okay during yes. our conversation. Thank you, Crystal. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So, you know, I was talking, I, I'm reading this piece by Sean Harper of Forbes, and it's entitled Quiet Quitting Isn't Really a Thing Among Black Workers. And I, I thought it was such a fascinating topic to explore because as we talk more about quiet quitting, what it is, how it's gotten popular on social media, it, it, it of course has an intersectionality with race, with gender, um, with folks who are marginalized. And I know that in your work, you all of your work intersects in those groups. So first, let's start with, talk to me about your background and the work that you do. Yeah, definitely. I am, um, I carry an expertise in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, I mean, honestly, any workplace or industry that I'm involved in or touching, that lens comes with me and it's centered in, in how I show up in my work. Right now I'm actually teaching. I'm teaching at Tufts University in the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and Justice Leadership Program. And so I get to take what I've been doing in practice and I've worked in higher education, municipal government, um, in inaugural positions, trying to establish organizational structures and practices around equity and inclusion. And um, now I get to sort of bring that practice into the classroom and, and help prepare the next set of um, practitioners, change agents to go out into their uh, industries and, and really affect change, cultural change in the workplace and practices uh, and how we provide our services. Absolutely. And so 
when we're talking about this phenomenon, quiet quitting, I know you have worked in corporate or business settings before. I mean, what were some of your initial thoughts as you started seeing this pop up on social media and things like that? You know, it's always so interesting when, when a uh, concept gets coined or a term comes out and everybody runs with it. And then I'm, I'm wondering, what is quiet quitting? It's, it's carrying a bit of a negative connotation. Uh, this focus on generation, uh, the Z generation or what have you. And <clears throat> digging in deeper, I recognize that it's, it's an old age um, sort of perceptions of, of how, you know, the workplace culture should be, right? And this notion of going to college, getting your degree to become uh, a specialist in an area to work for a company and you work for 40 years and then graduate, I mean, graduate, retire. Uh, in, in, Probably in, feels like graduate. <laughs> you work 40 years somewhere. To that freedom of an independence. Um, and while you're there, you've got to be a good worker bee, right? And being a good worker bee means going above and beyond. And so um, I, it made me think about going into the workplace early on. So I'm first generation, low income immigrant uh, family background. So for me, everything was a first. Everything was figuring it out as you're going along. And when I got into the workplace, <clears throat> it naturally didn't feel right to me that you hire me for 40 hours a week or 39.7 hours a week. But yet uh, it's the idea that there's no time right? If we need you to stay later or do things uh, after hours, that's what you're expected to do because you're on salary. And in, in order to do this, um, you need to do this in order to step up, to get promoted to, you know, and coming from a low-income background, having um, tons of loans on my back, you know, you want to walk that straight line because you do want to have that pathway to promotion. But there's this dynamic of the racial cultural aspects, especially racial ethnic aspects that <clears throat> as much as hard as I've been playing and as much as I've been going above and beyond, it's not seen in the same way as my white counterparts. My promotions are not afforded to me at the same rate or the same speed as my white counterparts. So, um, and then it's, it's culturally clashing because Cape Verdean background with very tight knit family oriented um, as a domestic partner, like for me to even name it as such, you can see how it's centralized in my role and how I show up in my culture. So it's hard to be able to divide the time that I have to give to my family and in addition, give it to the job, but then the job is keeping your family afloat. And it really becomes this double-edged sword um, that I just, I reject it. And there's a fear, there's a fear aspect too. I'm first generation going to college and and going into a field that like journalism which folks are like how do you make money at that like yeah. is that like a thing like I remember I had aunts and uncles who were like that's white people stuff like we don't do those jobs and yeah. so not feeling like you can say anything because you have to succeed there's no other option there's no safety net and so yeah you're going to stay above and beyond sometimes with paid overtime sometimes without paid overtime because you need the job you have loans and also to fail at this thing you fought so hard for just seems unimaginable yeah <laughs> I, I agree and that that fear is very real because it's not just uh oh do I like this job or am I enjoying my lifestyle it's really about survival like can I make my bills 
at the end of the month or the end of the week. So, um, but you know what? I've always intuitively, and it's just the nature of how I show up uh, and being a DEIJ officer, you know, it, it's not surprisingly that I've rejected that and work to empower um, young people, students to do the same, to find their voice, right? And to um, set the standards for how they want to be treated and, and, and uh, really turn that lens on of assessing companies, not just hoping and praying you'll get a job, but interviewing them as well and making sure that if there's extra time that's needed, extra money should follow. You know, these, these institutions, corporations, they have the finances um, and it's a matter of how those finances are being distributed and where the value of those resources are being placed. Because if you want extra money, I mean, you want extra time, extra work, it should be, it should be paid for. I understand the salary component, but I think that the, the culture needs to shift. It should be about getting the job done. Um, it's unfortunate that we had to have a pandemic to really force and thrust this nation, this society into this wave of being more flexible. But, you know, God willing that that did happen because it doesn't matter to me. Sometimes some of the some of the positions are like seriously eight hours a day is probably too much time for me to do what I need to do for y'all. If I'm really, right. you know, giving you quality work. Right. It should be about getting clear about goals, understanding indicators of, of measuring progress along the way. And through there, we can make sure that the work is being done and we're not just being clocked by the time. You right. Because uh, you could be so much more productive if, say, your product, if your productivity is measured by deliverables versus just hours you're sitting at your desk. Exactly. Exactly. One of the points in the article I thought was interesting um, in terms of like breaking down this issue is uh, Har uh, Sean Harper says that there's often a feeling and sometimes proof that a black person has to work twice as hard to get half as far as a less accomplished white colleague. And I think you spoke to this a little bit, but it's like, you feel like you have to be at your desk 80 hours a week just to get as much recognition for the work that your white counterparts do. But I mean, let's be honest, that's, that's, that's what we do. Right. We have to. Um, right. there, there's going to be this perception of how we show up just based on how we look and the color, the, the, the tonality of our skin. Um, and so we combat that every day. So the frenzy for us is normalized because that's just, that's what we, that's the state in which we live in is just always trying to prove ourselves. Mm. Um, and even when you go above and beyond, you're still not able to sometimes show that proof or the person who has the power doesn't see <clears throat> the value in the work. I can't tell you how many times, excuse me, in the field of higher education, I was advised if I want to move up, I have to move out. Mm. Mm. You're talking about institutions that you study. You know, you gain your knowledge and expertise from the institution and then they don't see the value in your capacity. Um, and, and it's how can you prove that that's racially influenced? Right? Yeah, well, that's the thing. This the intangibles, right? It's in the, uh, there's like a Japanese proverb called is the thousand paper cuts, right? You don't always see them, but you could end up bleeding to death at the end. And so that being whatever, looking like, 
not getting that promotion, being someone constantly having someone who's do producing less, get the jobs that you're going for. Um, and I think that that kind of rolls into one of the other points in the article about this invisibility, hypervisibility sort of paradox that, yeah. that um, you see in the workplace where it's like, okay, when I'm doing some, when I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, I'm invisible. But when, yeah. when I do something, maybe my white counterpart is also doing, but is like, you know, a little bit outside the rules, leaving five minutes early or something like that. That's when that hypervisibility piece comes in. And it's, it's a difficult tightrope to walk. I mean, that's, I can definitely attest to that in my experience professionally. It's probably heightened though for me because the work that I'm doing, mm -hmm. you know, when you are in an, in an inaugural role or you're the one who's, you know, raising uh, your voice um, against disparities or what have you, uh, you definitely will become that known voice. Even your hair, even mm -hmm. the fact, you know, you've got big hair and you come into the room when, when you're not there, you're noticed. Um, it, I, I did pick up on that in the article. It made me think about the, the book. Um, every, I'm sure most people have read Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in Cafeteria? Yeah. When, when it's a Black person or an Asian uh, group of people sitting there, you notice. But when it's white, right? Because we, we, we walk into white groups of people every day. That's not something that's noticed and called out, right? So just in that sheer presence, we deal with that, never mind how we're showing up, right? We right. got to bid, we're a couple minutes late because, you know, black people are always late. And so those are, those are the type of pressure points. Um, you know, it's making me think of, to be uh, an effective leader, especially as a um, diversity officer, you, you have to show up strategic, you have to be strategic, right? You have to be authentic. And you have to be unapologetic in how you show up in these spaces. And I remember always making sure that when I show up, I'm polished, I'm speaking in a particular way, even my body language, my facial expressions. I mean, everything has to be noted and, and sort of monitored. And I remember being in a space and it was a dean of a college, <clears throat> excuse me, a white man, just his free unapologetic self you know, being um, coy and, 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 you know, joking around. And I just awakened my spirit to say, today, moving forward, you will not show up any other way than as you are, you know? Um, and I'll now, say- was that scary? That's very scary. It's scary and I have to name it so that I can call it out for others who- you know, sharing the similar background and experience with me because we've never gotten that message that that's okay. And it's it's always uh, sort of coupled with that fear of, you don't, the, the other concept to quiet quitting is, is what, quiet firing. Yeah, right? yeah. So you don't know that when you show up unapologetically as your true self, you might experience some quiet quitting because folks will start maybe leaving you out of conversations, not including you in particular projects. And it's done in ways that you can't prove it. Um, it becomes extremely stressful and, and definitely, you know, messes with the mental health, right? So it, it's, um, it's pretty cyclical and 
again, when you think about the effects on one's mental health, then you start to think about the seriousness of um, people of color in this conversation and, and the, the other layer, right, that's added to it that we're not discussing when we're talking about quiet quitting. What? So I hire you, I'm a big Fortune 500 company or even a smaller company, right? And I hire you to address this. All my workers are quiet quitting. I have, and I have a, a diverse staff as well. I mean, how do we get to this issue? How can employers, leaders, managers do better here? Yeah, you know, I, I think the thing to do is start focusing on managing people um, and sort of meeting people where they are and just, let's just, let's just get rid of this traditional notion of, you know, because I've heard folks talking about this and, and carrying this ne negative connotation to quiet quitters as um, doing the bare minimum mm. and, you know, not being uh, team players or effective players. I, I, I just think that I've, people work differently and they produce in different ways and each job function has its requirements and its um, sort of goals, outcomes that you're seeking for that person to accomplish, right? And so I think it's, it's gonna take a little bit more work on our managers and even <clears throat> CEOs to understand what is the output you're looking for uh, in, in creating this position and what is your ability to be flexible in allowing individuals that bring the talent and expertise to produce what it is you're looking for versus, you know, clocking in nine to five, unless it's an hourly position, unless it's a position that requires you in front of the, the, um, the, at the job for a certain amount of hours, there's just some positions you can't get away with that. It's less flexible than others. But in those cases, when it does get beyond um, that point, then there should be other incentives. It doesn't always have to be pay. It could be flex time. It could be um, where folks are working. There's just, you know, I thankfully I'm with a, an institution that is, you know, very flexible and is focused on the production, right? And not how I'm doing the work. And so that's the thing. If you trust your people and you equip them with the right training and resources, it should be about the deliverables. You know, now you have to layer a DEI piece on top of that, though. Oh, of course, because that's where the cultural uh, sensitivity is going to come in across the different needs of the individuals. I mean, that's true inclusivity, because when you think about inclusivity, it's not about race, right? But it's about the individual needs and meeting people where they are. And um, that's the difference between equity and equality. So there's people on the sideline who will say that's not fair. If they get that, I should get this. And it's not always about everybody getting the exact same thing. And so managers um, also being more clear about that difference is, is important because um, what may work for one person doesn't work for the other, but the end result is still about production and quality, right? Right. As long as the widgets are made, right? So that, that's the idea. Um, one thing I thought was very interesting, and I think about this in the background and I guess in the foreground of my mind all the time is that people of color, you and I are both first generations um, women, you know, there's a representation burden that is put on black folks in the workplace, right? You know, I'm in a in an industry, especially in Boston, where there are 
a handful of people of color who are on television. And I think about how important representation in that space is. You know, if you think about STEM, where there are so few people of color, especially Black people, Black women, Black men that are working in those fields. Um, and sometimes if you feel like you need to quite quit, you have this guilt, like, but I'm representing the culture. And mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a dichotomy there. Yeah. No, I can definitely understand that. Mm -hmm. here's my thing I, I think when it comes to your greater life's purpose your quality of life and your well-being I think that if it's your time to go you have you should go whether they call it a quiet quit or for me it's never quiet because when I'm gone everybody knows I'm gone right. and then like people are whispering and it's like, oh, I heard you laugh. I've, I've been through four or five different institutions in my 15 years, you know, and every time, why do people know that I left somewhere? And people are wondering, why did she leave? Because you, we, it, it doesn't serve ourselves. It doesn't serve the institutions. It doesn't serve society. If we're in places that we're not valued and our talents are not being maximized to its fullest potential. Right. And I know there's you're never going to get to a place where it's just going to that mashup. It's just going to always be there. But when there's a willingness to work together and grow together, then you stick it out. You let that representation help drive and motivate you. But when it's not, especially in my work, you're hired to do a job. But you have to convince people that this is the work that needs to be done. You can't survive so that eventually we lose the potency of what it is you bring to the work because of everything else, right? Um, I think that's such an important, because especially with folks who are in DEI spaces and people minimize that work, uh, they think it's a trend. It's like, uh, it's this new thing. And, and then oftentimes you have to be, you have to defend your position. Like, oh, what's DEI? What do you do here? Is that a job? I didn't know that was a job. Um, and we lost your audio a little bit on that. Like, what does that feel like to be in a space where you have to defend your work, your place in that organization? It's super challenging. Yeah. And, and I, part of my, res oh, my research is focused on the lived experiences of chief diversity officers at predominantly white institutions in the Northeast. And um, even through the research that, that, mental health, self-care, wellness piece comes up a lot in that not just not just um, mentally, but the mental stress that even affects folks physically, just so that you understand how difficult that is. The irony of the work um, is, is super challenging, right? So it definitely takes uh, special kind of beings. <laughs> To, to be in that role because it is that dynamic that you're saying, like, do I hold this spot because I'm representing? Do I hold this spot because I know that without me, there may not be a North Star for us to work towards, a head towards. Um, but that's where you have to make, you have to make those personal choices when it gets to a point where it, it is becoming um, detrimental to your health. Um, but you find community, you find networks and you find people who are doing the work and we can celebrate the wins along the way um, because we know that we're not going to end racism. 
we're not going to end oppressive practices within our systems, at least in our lifetime, but we know that we want to push that needle forward so that when we pass the baton, the next generation can get us even closer, right, to that, that state of inclusive excellence we, we are aiming for. So what would you say if there is, you know, to someone who may be in a position that is frustrating for them and they experience all the barriers that we talked about, what would you, what would you advise them if they came to you and was like, how do I, I don't know what the way forward is. You know, I, I would advise them as I advise my students, I advise myself really is to, to take a moment to dig in deeper be still. I mean, I know it sounds cliche, but really it's about us not knowing exactly where our purpose and gifts for the world is and how it is that we can, you know, share that out and just help folks recognize that while a college degree is obviously um, important. Hello, I have my doctorate degree. I've made it all the way through the chains, if you will, um, but it's not everything and it's not the only way. Uh, and, and really start moving people into um, wealth mindset development and knowing that it, it doesn't always have to just be in one place and that you can find fulfillment um, in other places. As a DEIJ, like change agent, you've got to know that you have to be ready and willing to build your own pathways and chart um, trails that haven't been blazed before. Right, because if they have been, then what are we really here doing? Mm, yeah. Because the precedent of what we're here to do is to create change, and sometimes that means um, going down a path that's that hasn't been, um, you know, too too well defined. And so I would just encourage people to be courageous. You know, find your voice and not be afraid to to stand for standards that you have. I'm super happy the generation has stood up and awakened the the previous generations because i've been we're in the middle right we're like we got to get along to, to go along but then the, the the new generation coming up is like no more and i'm like yes let's normalize that because me pushing against the grain to say listen after 5 p.m like i'm done or on the weekends you can have me but to a certain extent like there's got to be a give and take um and that's what organizations have to to focus on We've got to take care of the people who are taking care of the business. Absolutely. Dr. Maritza Barrows, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Dr. Maritza Barrows, DEI expert and lecturer at Tufts University. For more Common Narrative, hit us up on social at Common Narrative or Common Narrative Media. And of course, tune in every Monday from 1 to 3 right here on Spark FM Online and find past episodes on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time. Take care of each other.